Well, we issue a happy Father's Day greeting to our dads as we have several times already. Join me there in Proverbs, and we're going to spend a few minutes talking about the two ways that we lead. Now, this is true of everybody. Everyone leads in two particular ways. And so we're going to break those down today, but we're going to focus primarily on fathers, and we're going to learn from Solomon both in a positive example as well as a negative example in his life. So join me in Proverbs chapter 4. One of the most interesting things about fatherhood is the realization that God has chosen to be known to believers as father. This is a great truth of Scripture that is encouraging to us in a couple of ways. First, in the way of relationship. There is this preciousness of our relationship with God to be able to call Him not just the generic word, Father, but to be able to call Him the, the, the term of endearment we find in Romans chapter 8 when it says that the Spirit within us cries out to Him, Abba, which is the Hebrew word for Daddy. It was a very endearing, very intimate, very close term. It was what a child would say to their dad in a very endearing and loving and um, very close and intimate way. And so we have this privilege first in understanding God in a relationship where through faith in Jesus, we're born into this family where we call him Father. And we are his children. We're adopted. And it's a, it's a beautiful thing. But the second beauty of God's revelation of himself to us as father is that not only does he have that relationship with us, but he has the, the perfect example of fatherhood. The two things that we'll talk about the, in the sermon today, the two ways that, that fathers particularly are to lead their families, their children, are the two ways that God also leads. But we're going to see in Solomon's life how there was a breakdown in that, and the disconnect caused some challenge for his children, particularly for the son that we know best from Kings and Chronicles. So, let's start with something secondary. We usually give something first and then something second, but... Number one, our children are led secondarily by what is taught. So, all right, Bart, why are you giving what's second first? Well, I think that'll explain itself when we get there. Our children are led secondarily by what is taught. In other words, the second most effective way that we lead our children is by instructing them, by teaching, by having a relationship where we are giving them specific instruction. And that's laid out for us in some particular ways. Now, when you take verses 20 through 27 of Proverbs 4, there's enough that we could camp there for a month. So I'm not going to do that. I'm going to pull out of there four primary things that I think Solomon was teaching us through the inspired Word of God here. So letter A, first, is to lead them to listen. He says, my son, give attention 
to my words and incline your ear. Have you ever watched somebody when they really want to listen to something? What do they do? They turn their head and they, they, they want to get it, so they turn their head toward it. And that's the picture here is that Solomon is saying to his son, this is so important, you need to turn your head, you need to incline your ear to get this. The very first part of child-rearing and the thing that will become so important later in life is to teach our children in terms of what we are instructing them from our mouths as we're teaching, is to teach them to listen. One of the first acts of sinful autonomy is for a child to not listen to or to ignore the command or the instruction of a parent. Have you ever noticed that parents have to say something like this? If I have to tell you one more time, y'all ever said that? And what happens is, is we, we're, we're actually already experiencing in a young child their propensity to sinful autonomy by rejecting what we are saying, by not listening, by not heeding. The word listen here means more than physically let it flow into your head. It means to heed what is being said. Here in Solomon's introduction, he says, son, listen very carefully to me. Incline your ear to what I have to say. As I've counseled with parents, as I've talked with parents of adult children, as I've talked with employers and friends, one of the most challenging things that we ever hear and one of the hardest things to overcome is when a child has become older or a teen or a young adult and somebody says this about them. They don't listen. They, they won't listen to me. They will not hear what I'm saying. In fact, as a, an adult, one of the worst things that can be said about you is that you're not teachable. And that means you've lost the capacity to listen, not just to have audible sounds coming into your ears, but to actually hear things and let them come into your life and into your heart. And so one of the first challenges for parents is to take the time in early childhood, now it's never too late for this, but to begin well in early childhood to instruct our children to listen when we are speaking. And to respond to that. James Dobson uh, tells a story in his book, Dare to Discipline, which I highly recommend for parenting. An excellent book. And one of the things he says, he says, have you ever watched a state trooper on the highway? He says, if you've ever had the experience of either seeing a state trooper in action or having a state trooper pull you over, one of the things that you'll always notice is that they're always calm and they're always the ones that are in control. State troopers don't stand at the side of the road going, if you don't stop speeding, I'm going to pull you over. They don't do that. They pull you over and they stop you from speeding. 
And the reason people have such a respect for them is in their training, one of the things that they are taught is you are always the one in control. And if you ever have to tell somebody that you're in control, you're not in control. And what James Dobson said is parenting has to establish from an early time who's in charge. And if you have gotten to the place in parenting where empty threats are being thrown about, and that if you ever, and if you don't, and the threats are there and unfollowed, you're not in charge anymore. Your child is the one who is in charge. And so what Solomon does is, here at the beginning, he says, here's the deal. Son, please listen to me. Another good book as a resource, if you would like, you say, okay, I'm in that child-rearing era where I'm you know, new child or I've got some younger children and I'm really struggling and I've maybe got a strong-willed child. There's a great book by Kevin Lehman, and we've done this course before, and I love the title of this book. It's called Making Your Children Mind Without Losing Yours. That's a wonderful title. Why is it a wonderful title? Because we know those moments when we feel like we're losing our mind trying to get our children to mind us. And so the first thing that he's doing here is he's establishing this base of, listen, and that's where we start. A child that will not listen will not do the next things that we're going to talk about. So let's go to letter B. Lead them to learn important things. What does Solomon do? He says in verse 21, do not let them depart from your sight and keep them in the midst of your heart. He's talking about the three ways that people are influenced to learn. They learn by hearing, they learn by seeing, and then they learn by internalizing something into their life and into their heart. But what Solomon is doing here is he is making sure that the most important things are first and foremost. My brothers and sisters and, and fellow dads and parents, our children need at a very early age to hear from our lips and to see with their eyes so that they can internalize in their hearts what's really important. And that means not sending, and we're going to get to this in a second, not sending com- confusing messages about what really is important. How we respond to things and how we live our lives in front of them lets them know what's really important to us. And we're going to see in Solomon's life how that was a challenge. So here's, he says, okay, teach them to listen. And then as you have their attention, you want to focus on what they're hearing, seeing, and internalizing so that what they're taking in are the important things of life. That means there are some things in life that really are more important than others. There are some things that are essential and some things that are not essential. And we have to make sure as parents we're not mixing those up. In our culture, it's easy for sports to seem essential. It's easy for recreation to seem essential. It's easy for non-essential things to give the appearance of being essential. And so we have to be able to sort what are the essential things and how are we to focus our time with our children. 
our time with them is very limited today. With our schedules and our work and our schooling, the time that a parent has with a child is very limited. And therefore, the necessity of focusing on the important things, that's what the book of Proverbs does. Is he, Solomon's spending a lot of time on, and, and repetitively, on those important things. Okay, third thing. He's getting them to listen. He's getting them to learn. And now he's going to lead them, let her see, to value life, eternal and temporal, by keeping watch over their heart. He's going to teach them to value life, eternal and temporal, by keeping watch over their heart. Listen to the words here. Verse 23. For these words are life to those who find them. Obviously, these are God-truths. And then he says, And health to all their whole body. Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. Now, valuing life means having a great, a, a, a great understanding of that we are created by God and that temporal life is a gift and a blessing. We are engaged in a culture of death. Death is, is, is so um, ingrained in our thinking from the, the abortion industry that basically has, has convinced people that you're only valued if you're wanted. To all of the glorification of death and darkness through very dark video games where murder and mayhem is, is the norm, where killing is, is reflexive and not something that's considered. And there's a culture surrounding us that has a very low view of life. And so what we are called to do is to teach our children how wonderful a treasure temporal life is as a gift from God, but even furthermore, how much greater the value of eternal life is from God. Because Jesus is going to follow Solomon's words and say, my words are life. And he's going to show how eternal life is tied to trusting in him. And so this challenge is to challenge us to value life. Now, he gives some instruction on how to do it. Our value of life is built by what we take into our heart. How we value, how we assess how we view life, ours and others temporally, ours and other eternally, is built upon what we take into our heart. When we take the wrong things into our heart, it takes the purity away, it defiles, and it does so in such a way that it actually discolors our view of life. I'm going to give a specific example of that in just a moment. And so here he's saying to his son, first thing I need to teach my son, I need to teach him to listen. 
Second, through teaching him to listen, I'm going to teach him through his listening and observing to learn, to take into his heart what is important. And the thing that I'm going to help him do is from his youth, I'm going to help him from his being a child, I'm going to help him know that what you take into your heart, listen carefully, becomes a part of you. When I counsel with Teenagers, young adults, middle adults, senior adults. One of the things that I run into is things like, I can't unsee what I've seen. Some having fallen into the practice of things like pornography now have this set of images they can't escape once introduced into the heart. Some having fallen into behaviors that are sinful and have etched memories and desires into their hearts. Somehow we've gotten this idea that it's cool to sow your wild oats and then have a come-to-Jesus moment and everything's going to be okay. But I can tell you from counseling families and marriages and teens and even children that what you do becomes a part of who you are. And there's not some magic moment that you can undo that. And so when he's saying to his son, guard your heart, for from it flow the springs of life, he's saying, if the spring becomes polluted, so does its outflow. And so he's encouraging his son to value integrity and purity. Moms and dads, we have a high responsibility for the access that we have granted our children and youth to the things on television, internet, and cell phones. And we'd better get a really, really good hold on those things because I have talked with a number of very young people who encountered things through those media and their parents had no idea it was going on. And so we have a grave responsibility to make sure that what is flowing through to the devices that our children have access to are that those things are filtered and carefully supervised. The challenge here is realizing and helping folks understand that what you take in is going to affect what you are. Now, I'm not denying the power of the gospel to cleanse a heart and to cleanse a conscience. I'm not denying that. I believe that with all of my heart. I believe when you get saved, God does supernatural things to you. But I also believe that there are physical, temporal consequences to behaviors that we engage in on this earth that make life very challenging as we age. And so I really want to encourage you to focus in, help them listen, help them learn, and help them value life temporally and eternally by valuing what they are becoming in their heart. The fourth thing that I believe we should help them with is to lead them to be empowered to leave evil 
Look in verses 25 through 27. And by the way, I want to just insert one small thing here. I don't think it is any accident that verse 24 follows verse 23. 23 talks about how a person takes things into their heart and it becomes a part of them. 24 talks about lying lips. And Jesus said that the mouth speaks out of the overflow of the heart. And so lying lips are always an indicator of a heart that has been polluted. So, we didn't have time to really dig into that. So, here in verses 25 through 27, let your eyes look directly ahead, let your gaze be fixed straight in front of you. In other words, you know where you're going, what, think about eternity, have a, a view of what is right and straight and correct. Then it says, watch the path of your feet and all your ways will be established. Then it says, do not turn to the right nor to the left. And then it says, turn your foot from evil. This is an intentional act. Now, leading them to be empowered to leave evil means more than saying, just say no. I think one of the things that parents fail to navigate well, let me break it into two parts. I think parents often fail to remember how challenging it was as a child and as a youth in the things that we struggled with when we were there. I think some of it just kind of fades. But I also think that we are probably not aware that the amount of temptable things in this generation has greatly increased from most of us who have children. Greatly greatly increased. The access to things that are bad is instant now. There was a time when that was not so. If you wanted to get into trouble, you had to look for it. I think it's worse now. I don't think the evil itself is worse, but I think the access to it is. And so teaching our children to be empowered to leave evil is more than kind of a just say no attitude. Thomas Chalmers was one of those great old preachers back in the 1800s, and he would preach these really super long, really meaty sermons. And one of the sermons that he preached, and you can tell how meaty it is by the the title, one of the sermons he preached was called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. Now, how many of you have used the word expulsive in the last week? Probably none of us. And so these are things, 1800s, little different language, but the expulsive power of a new affection. And basically, here's what his point was. His point is that it does no one good to simply tell them no. If you simply tell a child no about sin, about temptation, what happens is is that they struggle with the fact that if they just say no and put that thing out of their heart, it leaves what he calls a vacuum. And he says in his sermon, nature abhors a vacuum. So in other words, nature will always fill a vacuum with something else. And what he does is in his sermon, he says, the way to overcome evil is not simply through telling people how bad things are. 
The way to overcome evil is to show how good God is and that when he is brought into one's heart, he has the power and the satisfying ability to expel from us the power of other temptations. Now, I want to give you an example of that in Matthew 4. So join me there, Matthew 4. Jesus always being the perfect example for us. I want to take you there and then give you one more example, and then we're going to close. In Matthew chapter 4, Jesus is having a time of temptation. The Spirit has led him up into the wilderness to be tempted. How long did Jesus go without food? Forty days. Now, how many of you have fasted completely for 40 days? No food at all. I don't think there's anybody. There may be one or two people. Some people have done that. Now, here's the important thing to know about Jesus fasting for 40 days. He felt exactly like you would feel after you fasted for 40 days. He didn't get the Son of God pass on this. You know how uh, in the NFL when they're doing the brackets, the, the best teams get a bye the first week? They don't have to play the first week. They got that first week off, okay? Same thing happens in some other bracketed sports events. The best get the, the, the... And so they don't even know what it feels like to play that first week. They're all rested up. They come into the next week all rested up while the other team comes and beat up. Jesus didn't get a bye in the round. After 40 days of not eating, he felt exactly like you would feel after 40 days of not eating. That's why the Bible says, and I love the King James there, it says, he was hungered. That's a great way to put it. He was incredibly 40 days worth of hungry. Just like you would be. He was feeling the effect of the blood sugar loss and the conversion where your body is now living off of what is there, burning its own muscle, burning its own fat, using up any stores anywhere, and having to actually start to consume itself. And there's a weakness there, and there's a, there's a, there's a near delirium after those 40 days where you're really, 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 really hungry, and Satan steps in. And he's going to tempt Jesus. And if you look there, it says, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. Now, I've shared this with you before. When I grew up, the way that I was taught is that what happens here is that Jesus uses Scripture quoting as, a def- as his way of, um, of defending against temptation. Now, I think Scripture quoting is a good defense, but that's not what's happening here. Jesus is not telling Satan the Scripture as a quote as his defense. Jesus is telling Satan what he's actually been doing as his defense. What does that mean? Well, read. Jesus answered and said, It is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Here's what he was saying. He was saying, Satan... You do not have a grip on me in this temptation because I have taken my hunger and turned every bit of it to my Father through His Word. And for the last 40 days, you know what I've been doing? I've been eating every day. You're not finding me empty today, Satan. You're not encountering me empty. You're encountering me 
that I have been filling my heart with the good, fat sustenance of my Father's words. There's no vacuum there. There's no void there. I haven't just simply been putting the bad out. The way I'm combating you is I have been eating my Father's bread all this time. And therefore, you're not finding me at a vulnerability where I have simply created a vacuum by trying to put what is bad out. You're finding me satisfied with who my Father is. And I've been dining on His Word. How does that come into play? The more satisfied our children are with who God is and what He has done for them, the better defense they have to turn their foot from evil. Their ability to turn from evil is directly related to their satisfaction in God. When we rear children to dine and feast on the Lord's Word every day, to take into their heart and into their mind the good fatness of His Word, then what happens is when those times of temptation come, they have a defense to turn from evil that's more powerful than simply saying no. It is that they have said yes for day after day after day to Jesus. And that they have found that satisfying so that they are not starving for all the things of the world. Now, let's move to the second part, and I'll try to do this quickly and in a summary fashion. Our children are not primarily taught, uh, not primarily led by what is taught. Uh, James Dobson pointed this out in one of his great books. Let's go to the next point. Our children are led primarily by what is caught. In other words, they learn more from watching us than hearing us. That's how they get it. This is so simple but profound, and we're going to see it in Solomon's life. Here's Solomon. He's sitting down with his son, and he essentially writes him a book and says, My son, hear this. The Holy Spirit has inspired him so that not only his son gets it, but for all of the ages we get it. And it's glorious, and he's the wisest man who ever lived. And so he's passing this wonderful wisdom of God onto us, and so he's giving him this instruction. But his sons were not influenced as much by what was taught as by what was called. In other words, our children are formed and shaped more by what we do than what we say. And if there, is a, if there is a contrast between what we say and what we do, they will most likely follow what we do. So I want to just show you two things about Solomon. So go to Ecclesiastes with me, chapter 2. Ecclesiastes. It's a little bit after Proverbs there. And come with me to chapter 2, and I want to break it down into two parts. Because something happens, and there's this breakdown. And in this breakdown, Solomon loses his kids. But the breakdown is not in what was taught. 
Solomon's there, he's teaching it, he's laying it out, he's instructing it. My son, incline your ear. My son, give attention. My son, listen to what I'm saying. Guard your heart. And then what happens is, guess what Solomon doesn't do? He doesn't guard his heart. Now I want to share something with you as we step into this that is so important. If it is true that you are to guard your heart, for from it flow the wellsprings of life. That once your heart becomes polluted, I'm talking about intentional, willful pollution. Once it becomes polluted, it will flow out of your life into every aspect. You will not get to pick what areas it influences. And so what happens is, is Solomon... So let's go to letter A, and, 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 and I want to bring this together... First, they are led by looking at our lives. And here now, Solomon, he's teaching this one thing, but now look at his life. Chapter 2, verse 1 of Ecclesiastes. So I said to myself, come now and I will test you with pleasure. So enjoy yourself, and behold, it too was futility. And a set of laughter, it is madness. And of pleasure, what does it accomplish? I explored with my mind how to stimulate my, my body with wine while my mind was guiding me wisely. <laughs> That didn't work out, by the way. Uh, You'll see in a second. And then he goes on and says, How to take hold of folly until I could see what good there is for the sons of men to do under the heaven for the few years of their lives. I enlarged my works. I built houses for myself. I planted vineyards for myself. I made gardens and parks for myself. I planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made ponds of water for myself uh, from which to irrigate forests of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves, and I had home-born slaves. And I also possessed flocks and herds larger than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. Also I collected for myself silver and gold, the treasure of kings and provinces, and I provided for myself male and female singers and the pleasures of men, many concubines. Then I became great and increased more than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. My wisdom also stood with me. I did all that my eyes desired. I did not refuse them anything. So here's a guy who sits down with his kids and has a really nice quiet time. And then he goes out and he lives his life in contrast to what he's taught him. And when Dobson used these two words, it stuck with me. More is caught than taught. So the primary way we influence our kids is by what they see us do. I think Bible times are great. I think quiet times are great and family devotions are great. Those are all important things. But what happens is is that it's through the course of life, through the day, what we're chasing that influences how our children believe. And so what happens is they're first led by looking at our lives. And letter B, they're led by observing our loves. They know what we're really after. They know. Our children observe us for a period of time and they get an idea what's driving us. By the time they're teens, they got a good idea and by the time they're young adults, they have a really super idea of what we really are after. They know whether we're really after God. And so what happens? Look at just these few verses and then I want to challenge you. He says, verse 10, 
All that my eyes desired, I did not refuse them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure. My heart was pleased because of my labor, and this was my reward or what I deserved for all my work. Then I considered all my labor and activities, which my hands had done and exerted, and I found out it was all striving after vanity in the wind. So I turned to consider wisdom, madness, and folly, and then when you finally get down to it, I want you to look at what happens in verse 17. So I hated life. So here's a guy who has everything. He's chased it, and he's got it. And at the end, he hates life. Now this transferred out of him into his son. It says that in the latter days, Solomon's heart was turned from the Lord. Here's what happened. Solomon thought somehow that he could hold the wisdom of God in one part of his heart and hold the pursuits of the things of this world in another part of his heart and that those two could stay there together and not get mixed up. That wisdom would ultimately guide him while he embraced these things of the world. And what happened is the things of the world overcame the wisdom. And it says that Solomon left the Lord and built high places to the other gods because his heart was turned because of the love that he had for foreign women. Now the sad thing is, is it didn't stay with him. I wish we could say, and, and, and it was a sad end to a story, and his children learned wonderful truths, but in 2 Chronicles chapter 12, I want to take you there, and we'll close with it. 2 Chronicles 12, his son comes along. And he does the same thing. He models his life after his father. Now, I'm not saying that he is not responsible for his actions, but there is a continuity here that the Scripture points out. He says in verse 1 of chapter 12 of 2 Chronicles, and it took place that when the kingdom of Rehoboam, that's the son of Solomon, was established and strong, and he and Israel with him forsook the law of the Lord. And we come down to verse 14 of the same chapter. And it says there, and he did evil because he did not set his heart to seek the Lord. Now what happened here? Rehoboam got two kinds of instruction. And I believe they were influential in his life. I don't believe they were ultimately causal because I think Rehoboam had to make his own choices. But I believe they were influential because I believe that God has made dads incredibly influential in their children's lives. doesn't mean if you had a bad dad, you can't turn out good by the grace of God. But it does mean there are things that we do in our teaching and what they are taught, in our living and what they are called, that have an influence on how they navigate life. I believe Rehoboam sat at his dad's knee 
with those Proverbs open. And he was taught a lot. But I believe ultimately he watched his dad's life. He watched the book of Ecclesiastes work its way out in Solomon's adulthood. And as Rehoboam grew up under that, he fell under the influence of a dad who justified his sin and compromised his life and brought ruin not just to himself, not just to his family, but Solomon brought ruin to a kingdom. And because of his actions of teaching one thing and doing another, he brought disaster to Israel. The great divide of the northern and southern kingdom came from the influence of a man who knew exactly what the right thing was to teach. He knew exactly what the right words to say. But when it came to living it, he let his heart be compromised and it spilled out into everything that he did. Would you bow with me? Now, you came here today and the Lord wants us to honor dads. And you were reminded when we began that God has chosen to reveal Himself, make Himself known to His followers as a father. And how glorious that role is to be a dad is to be so much like God. So much. But that God didn't just come to us and teach us so that what we got from God we were taught. God came to us and He modeled so that what we get from God is caught. You see, God clearly demonstrated His teaching not just by teaching us with His mouth from heaven or words in a book, but He came to us in Jesus who is the perfect picture of the ultimate dad. The dad who lives out his teaching. The dad who lives it to his own demise. Jesus models for us what the Father's love really is like. So that what we get from God is not just taught from his book. It's there, but it's caught from his actions recorded in the book. He loves us and he sacrifices. So that, my encouragement today to you is this. I want to ask you to make a commitment today to line up two things the way that God did in Jesus. Just line up these two things. Line up what you teach from God's Word with what you do. That's my commitment today. To line up the teaching and the doing so that what they are taught and what they have caught will both work together to point them to Jesus. And Dad, the starting place for that is to be empowered by salvation through Jesus. It's possible that you're here today and you're Dad and you have never came to that place of personal faith in Jesus Christ. And you have, have kind of maybe played along, maybe you've even become a church member, been baptized, but you're here today and you're saying, Pastor Bart, I'm, I'm, I'm there. I've been saying one thing, doing another, but the truth is, the problem is it's my heart. I've never 
given my heart to Jesus. And so my invitation, Dad, and to everyone today is take that first step today and come to Christ. Give your heart to Jesus and trust Him by faith. Now, Dad, some of you, like me, are here today and you've given your heart to Jesus, but you've struggled. And there have been some conflicts and some contrasts between what you've said and what you've done. And you, like me, need to say today, just a, a time of repentance, Father, I want to line these things back up. I know I'm a Christian, but I want to get these things back right. I want my children to see and to know and to hear your word from my lips and your word from my life. Grant that today, Father. As God stirs your heart, I, I'm praying for you today, Dad. Come to Jesus, whether it's for the first time or the first time in a long time. Would you stand with me as God stirs your heart? Would you come?